Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much for joining us today as we look down the literary gun barrel at John Gardner's Icebreaker, his third James Bond novel, published in 1983, almost 40 years ago. My goodness, that's uh, making me feel old here, folks, today. But my name is Scott Powell, and joined, as always, by my man in the field, Joshua Taylor. We're going to take you through the book and uh, see what you think about it, because uh, we've got our thoughts, and we're uh, excited to share them with you. So, yeah, and I'm pleased, Josh, that uh, we're finally able to bring this episode to listeners. Me too. And I'm really curious uh, how our conversation about Icebreaker is going to go. I have some thoughts on it, and particularly compared to the last two novels, I think it'll be an interesting conversation, and maybe a more excitable conversation, too. We'll yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. We'll do what we usually do with the uh, the plot summary coming at you in just a few minutes time. Uh, I really went into detail with it here. So uh, if, if you're familiar with the story and you don't want that plot summary, then you can skip 25 minutes or so once it begins. Uh, we'll get you back on the other side for our scoring. But before we launch into it, we, sh- we should also acknowledge, Josh, I think that our literary gun barrel episodes do tend to be a little bit shorter than our main episodes on the show because uh, it's just me and you talking books, one of our one of our loves. But um, what do we have in the world of Bond that we want to discuss? Anything? Or do we just want to skip the world of Bond update, save it for our hour, uh, save it for when Jeff's with us and go straight to work? Yeah, I think that's a developing story because obviously we can talk about the recent development of Barbara Broccoli announcing they're looking for a long tenured James Bond actor, like someone mm-hmm. who will do like 15 years. And that story yeah. could grow legs as we progress to the next podcast, our first, that's our true. next official yeah. Bond by Numbers podcast. So let's just see where that, play, yeah. how that plays out and then good, we can cover it in that point. episode. Uh, but in the world of James Bond, I will say, so this book, as you said, was published in 1983. This is the year of Octopussy with Eon and mm-hmm. the year of Never Say Never Again with Warner Brothers and McClory. That's right. So That's interesting. Right. It's a big fat year for James Bond, 1983. <laughs> you have <laughs> two Bonds in the year. theater <laughs> and then, and then John Gardner, uh, yeah. third, third, third outing, you know, his next, uh, Bond pop boiler. So. Yeah. yeah, I would say that covers the world of Bond pretty well. And we already talked about John Gardner in the first episode when we did License Renewed. So we know his bio. We know what he's all up to. And we know for a fact from that bio that we discussed that he served with Special Air Services. Uh, you know, he served in the artillery. Uh, so he's very well understanding of the functioning of those those units, as well as the, as the use of weapons and and, and uh, ordnance, and as well as equipment. And boy, does he talk about equipment in his books, particularly <laughs> in this one, almost to a point where it's kind of ridiculous. But we'll get into that later. Uh, here we got Icebreaker and John Gardner. As just as a preface, he's going back to a classic. Well, 1983. So maybe he was inspired by a certain Spielberg film two years before. 1981's The Raiders of the Lost Ark, we got Bond with Nazis in this one. So, <laughs> yeah, very Bond well possible Nazis. that it, it could have been like a, you know, he was following a trend, right? Of, uh, adventurers yeah. and Nazis. They seem to go well together. So why not, right? Let's uh, see what we can do with it today. All right. So after the summary, everybody, we'll get you back for our scoring as we always do. Thanks once again for joining here on Bond by Numbers. We hope you enjoy the show.
As with his previous effort for special services, here in Icebreaker, John Gardner's third Bond adventure, action begins in media res with its own pre-title sequence, giving us an immediate look at the big bad in action. A Libyan-Soviet conference is underway at the military trade mission complex outside of Tripoli, Libya. This heavily guarded facility, only used a few times per year, is playing host to final wheelings and dealings between the two nations which will see Russian arms moved into Africa and the Middle East when proceedings are interrupted by ten identically dressed armed assailants. Brandishing combat jackets, grey trousers, leather boots, and black berets with death's head insignia, these are members of the National Socialist Action Army, better known as the NSAA. Ruthlessly dispatching all but six of the Soviet and Libyan delegates in a torrent of bullet shower, the assassination squad suffers only minimal casualties and escapes into the morning warmth. Vowing to infiltrate and upset the communist mission around the world, the NSAA's Tripoli campaign was just one of 30 recent blows struck by the terrorist group for and in the name of international fascism. James Bond, meanwhile, some 4,000 kilometers north, sits in his room at the Intercontinental Hotel in Helsinki, Finland. He's there, returning home from a spurt of cold weather conditioning and survival training, that the service insists its agents refresh regularly. This year's grueling field exercise, arranged by M, saw Bond living off the belt and working undercover within the Arctic Circle and without permission from Scandinavian authorities. Before heading back to London, Bond had arranged for a winter driving course with his Saab 900 Turbo and further stretched time for pleasure by calling in on Paula Vacker, a Finnish Foreign Service ally Bond has known, intimately, for over five years. Feeling more of the part in his gabardine suit, Bond takes a taxi to Paula's and passes some impressive ice sculptures on his way to her apartment. Paula answers, but her looks convey danger immediately. Bond ushers her outside and has to deal with two thugs, affectionately named Runt and Carbuncle Nose. He makes quick work of disarming and frightening both away, but not without suffering a cut in the shoulder from the crafty blade of Carbuncle Nose. Paula, uninjured in the fracas, treats his wounds and confesses that she'd never spoken of Bond's visit to anyone, apart from a colleague from a different department named Annie Tudir. To her, she'd casually mentioned Bond, but so far as either of them could ascertain, nobody else had any idea he was in town. They decide to eat at home before enjoying dessert, and in the early hours of the morning, Paula gives Bond a lift to the airport. Back in London, M grills Bond over who the assailants in Helsinki could have been. Bond supposes that a leftover Spectre rogue might have been behind things, a contract killing. M, however, counters with a different idea. What about the NSAA? Pulling into play the threads of Gardner's introductory scene, M informs Bond that he is to join an ongoing multi-agency operation near the Arctic Circle. The target for the joint job is the NSAA. Specifically, Bond is to replace Cliff Dudley on the job from Her Majesty's representation after a personality clash with the American side led to a fallout. In addition to MI6 and the CIA, the KGB and Mossad are also involved. In fact, it was at the request of Russia that the group was established. 
Intelligence suggests that somewhere near the Finnish-Russian border, the NSAA is storing and dispatching its arsenal of Russian weapons. From there, the arms reach calculated terrorist agents within the neo-Nazi group. The plan of Operation Icebreaker is to intercept at the source of its weapons outpost. Behind the scenes, Chief of Staff Bill Tanner has been doing some homework on Paula Vacker's friend Annie Tudir. Though she seems clean enough, her father certainly isn't. Colonel Arn Tudir was one of Finland's top soldiers who accepted a post within the Waffen SS, and by the end of 1943 had risen to the rank of SS Oberführer and disappeared into the Nazi motherland. After the war, Tudir disappeared like many other war criminals. Gardner leaves the history lesson here dangling, but readers will soon be making connections for themselves involving this missing war criminal. Before Operation Icebreaker moves north and into action, Bond first must meet with the assembled team of agents. This meeting takes place in Madeira. First up is Bad Brad Turpitz, a block-jawed American toughy who holds his cards close but sends the regards of Felix and Cedar Lighter. Potentially an ally, the Mossad agent Rivka Ingber is a quote spectacular blonde, acutely desirable, but also an object lesson in health and body care. End quote. They chat over a buffet lunch. She and Bond, with a predictable helping of cliché flirting and male gaze, before meeting the others. As Russia led the charge with this arrangement, the agencies are pooling their resources through Nikolai Kolya Mosolov. Of the KGB, the plan is to intercept the NSAA at the source near the Russian border. It doesn't take long for Bond to work out Kolya's hiding something. The first hint is how he glosses over the full arsenal of heavy weapons being siphoned out of Russia. The second, significantly bigger, involves the suspected mastermind of this NSAA weapons gig, Count Konrad von Gloda. A name already shared by his boss, and as it turns out, Brad Turpitz's as well. The fact that MI6 and CIA both have the same intel on this von Gloda helps us along our way in making the connection between himself and the missing war criminal Arnit Tudir. A rendezvous is agreed, and members of the Icebreaker team prepare to head to Finland. Bond checks in with M before leaving and highlights his two main suspicions. One that Kolya isn't sharing the full shilling, and two that Arne Tudir may have a new identity. So far, Gardner is being very generous to his reader in this Playfair mystery. Like Bond, we have the same qualms and reservations, but presently, Bond arrives in Finland accompanied by his Saab 900 Turbo, fully equipped and stocked, ready for a heavy winter drive. Before heading up north, Bond calls on Paula once more. But discovers her flat empty and ransacked. Upon her clear dressing table, however, Bond sees a German knight's cross inscribed to Oberführer Arn Tudir. Also in the room is a bronze campaign shield with a rough map of Lapland. Double O Seven takes both of these and leaves for Route Five, which will take him north to Sala and the Arctic Circle. Near Rovaniemi. Several hours into his drive and two hours west of Sala, Bond is intercepted by a trio of menacing snowplows. At first, he figures they're just clearing the Arctic roads, 
but fairly quickly it becomes evident that they're looking to clear him. Now, as action scenes go, this incident has some threat in how powerful the machines are, but to any readers with knowledge and experience of snowplows, Gardner's attempts at characterizing these cumbersome municipal servants as anything other than big, slow, iron elephants is a little far-fetched. Nevertheless, we get our first winter action scene, and Eric Carlson's winter driving refresh certainly comes in handy for 007. Bond dispatches their attempts at ambush before finishing the trip to Rendezvous Point, Hotel Reventuli. Later, readers will be forgiven for wondering why Colia, through von Clode, bothered to set up this ambush, given their greater intentions for Bond, but the phrase, because plot, descends upon us like a snowfall. Exhausted by his drive and near-death experience, Bond heads to bed shortly after arrival, questions flurrying through his mind about Paula and the snowplows, Nazi medals, and the unknown threats that await. He's woken up shortly after nodding off by the beautiful Mossad agent Rivka Ingbar and her tapping. Without asking, let's chalk it up to Bond's trustworthy charm, Rivka plays coy and concerned before him, relaying her biography once Bond confesses that he knows who she really is, Annie Tudir. Nonchalant about his knowledge, even grateful it seems, Rivka, Annie, turns through the pages of her tale. Her father was indeed a Nazi on Mannerheim's staff, whose betrayal of Finland found the family hiding out after the war in a bunker in the Paraguayan jungle. She and her mother escaped and returned to Finland through the embassy's help. It was there as a student that she met Paula, Bond's Paula, and they became fast friends. By age 14, she had learned all she needed to know about the Third Reich and her father's associations, even if they didn't extend, personally, to Himmler's final solution. Her motivation of cultural payback fully loaded, Annie converted to Judaism shortly after leaving Finland for Israel around her 20th birthday. Her recruitment with Mossad happened months later. Now, given that M and the British Secret Service had no intel on this girl whatsoever, like zero, the speed and ease with which she shares script of her biography has us raising an eyebrow. Bond, however, elects to raise other body parts, and a night of lovemaking predictably ensues. Bond trusts Rivke, and we sort of do too, led by the narrative's need for an ally and our greater suspicion of Kolya. But it's worth keeping in mind that both she and her father were pretending to be other people. Ah, never mind. Bond's not really listening. The next morning, Rivka hits the slopes for a freshening up, while over breakfast, Brad Turpitz extends an olive branch to Bond in the form of details about the operation's impending night journey. We learn more about the CIA's distrust of Kolya, even stating that some elements of the KGB are mixed up with the NSAA, working within the USSR to subvert the communist ideal through fascism. The mission intercept involves a shipment of arms leaving that evening from Blue Hair, an ordnance depot near the borderlands of Alicurti. A mysterious phone call interrupts their conversation, and Bond listens as Paula, far from missing in action, chuckles down the line about a nebulous threat against Annie Tudir. And just like that, as if by design or remote, commotion on the slopes ensues when Rivka makes her final run down. Visible through binoculars, 
Bond and Turpitz watch her crimson-suited form glide down the slope until a remote explosion is set off nearby and blows her backwards. Still alive, Rivka struggles to walk, and Bond takes over while he waits for the ambulance. Grabbing a loud hailer from the ineffectual Finnish police, nice sobs, though, Bond communicates with Rivka from the base and instructs her on how to use the Payne's Wessex speed line, which he promptly fires over her head and which she uses to wrap around herself and be safely, if roughly, winched down the hill. The ambulance arrives, and a doctor says something about two broken legs before whisking her off. Now, the whole scenario is fishy for readers. I mean, why does she go skiing anyway? For starters, there's a ridiculously small window of comfort for skiing, which makes the endeavor seem fruitless, but add to that risks of frostbite and hypothermia, both of which she apparently catches, and the whole thing makes us wonder, who would want to ski here in these conditions? Well, it's not long before James Bond recognizes that the ambulance, the doctor, and the supposed hospital admissions were all a big performance. Doubts and questions don't linger long, though, as Colia takes over and leads the remaining members of the icebreaker into the evening's action. He starts by providing new ordnance maps of the destinations and the targets, both of which Bond already knows to have been scrupulously misaligned. A trap is being set somehow, but Bond plays dumb. Traveling by snow scooter, that's Skidoo for anyone from North America, the team will intercept the arms delivery from the Blue Hair Depot and follow it to a secluded outpost, a bunker facility where Colonel von Gloda himself is expected to be. Yes, Kolia finally confirms that afterthought, which all of the characters had been skirting around, that the NSAA's leader is none other than Arne Tudir himself, the ex-Nazi returned to complete his late Führer's work under a new terrorist banner. He also confirms that he's arranged for Rivka's replacement to meet them en route. Before leaving on the expedition, Bond sweeps his room for the second time and rechecks his gadgets the third or fourth such salivating diversion for Gardner's techie prerogative. Bond and Turpitz set up an alternative plan to reaffirm their positions, both fully expecting to be killed or captured by Kolia before the night is out. A transmission to M is sent via the Saab's car phone scrambler, and before you can say Glog Gluger, Operation Icebreaker is finally underway. Some nice evocative writing follows the team's snow safari through Lapland, and it's hard not to get a little wrapped up in it, as we can sense that Gardner is himself reveling in the fun. Before too long, another phantom explosion, like the one that took Rivka away, also hits nearby Brad Turpitz, removing the American from the story, at least for a while. To a T, Kolya's intel plays out impeccably. Bond knows that he's traveled this route before, and when they finally arrive at their vantage point, they watch the Russian BTRs come in and load up the weapons, just as he predicted. The mercenaries are dressed in Nazi-esque apparel, and it's easy for Bond to tell that they're on the right track. Following Kolya's map, they track the convoy on Skidoo to the Ice Palace, but before they reach the final destination, their cover is blown. Hit with blinding lights and approached from all angles by armed guards in long coats and coal-scuttle helmets, Bond slews his snowmobile to a stop and there meets Kolya's third agent, none other than Paula Vacker, laughing comfortably and speaking in a mock German accent. Dragged inside the compound, 
Bond gets his first look at the so-called Ice Palace of the NSAA. At first, it presents as a huge industrial bunker, a hollowed-out network of tunnels and exposed pipework. Led by Paula further in, Bond attentively notes catwalks, munition shelters, and, always the operative, potential exit routes. Soon, the cold concrete gives way to office aesthetic and domestic modes, the latter enunciated by a certain Third Reich puissance. Towering prints of Nazi propaganda capture the eye, and Fritz Erler's famous portrait of Hitler ushers Bond into an awkwardly comfortable room where he meets the mastermind fascist leader, head of the NSAA, Count von Glode. By his side is Bad Brad Tirpitz, nickname earned. Here, called Hans Buchtmann, Tirpitz is von Glode's SS Reichführer, his commanding officer. As villains go, von Glode is as maniacal as the rest, perhaps a little more so, but he operates from a cachet of borrowed ideas and is more about completing the vision of his Führer than he is determined to execute his own. Unlike Blofeld, Hugo Drax, or Auric Goldfinger, heck, even the Laird of Mercaldi from Gardner's own license renewed, each of whom were etching out their own design, von Glode is not a true original. Nevertheless, his threat remains real. After a fat-chewing biography of his post-war sojourns, von Glode shares his plans for the weapons, and more generally, for the Fourth Reich. Kolya, as predicted, was working both sides, and was promised Bond as a hostage to return to Russia. Though Smirsch hasn't existed for some time, Bond's name on the old guard hit list hadn't quite worn away, and a living, breathing 007 would raise a hefty reward for Kolya. More pressing for the NSAA, however, von Glode wants from Bond the location of a single operative being held prisoner by the British with knowledge of their new command post. Bond smarmily ridicules his plot, request, and philosophy, but his actions neither curtail nor extend his interview. Von Glode closes shop by confirming that Rivka is alive before sending 007 out for interrogation, questioning which doctors tell him no man born will not crack under. Led by Buckman down cold, slippery steps, the site of interrogation soon appears. The thick ice of a small natural lake which rises under the bunker is being cut to expose Bond's special bath. A block and tackle mechanism is used to hoist, submerge, and raise his naked form in and out of the water until he squawks. They want to know where the prisoner is being kept and what, if anything, he told their government about the new headquarters. The scene is equal parts intense and repetitive, with Bond conjuring summertime imagery and verse to keep himself alert. By the end of the torture, before blacking out, he's uncertain whether he blabbed about the Regent Park holding cell or not. 007 wakes up in a wardroom, being served Bovril by a pretty nurse. Next to him, laid up in plaster, is Rivka. Delighted to see her again, and receptive to her concern, not to mention mindlessly out of character, let's blame it on the frostbite and reunion feels, Bond confides in Rivka the intel that von Glode was after. The nurse eventually returns and tells them they'll soon be leaving with the Führer in his special personal aircraft, a modified Mystere Falcon jet. 
Why Gardner gives minor characters techie dialogue like this and info bits to share, I'll never really know, but it's the branded world we live in. Bond jokes in requesting a parachute, but his humor falls on deaf ears. Moments later, however, the switch is flipped when Paula enters the room with some Nazi costumery, instructs Bond to get dressed, and holds a firm P7 at Rivke. Confused, Bond does as he's told and quickly captures the truth of the situation when Rivka spotlessly slides out of her casts and issues her own pistol. But quicker to the draw, Paula Vackert decorates the wall with Rivka Ingber's head, thus terminating the lovely Mossad agent formerly known as Annie Tudir, von Glöde's own turncoat daughter. Not a nice image, I allow, but it's exactly the one Gardner gives us. Paula rushes through a brief explanation, promising more later. Bond didn't crack under torture, so they rigged him up with Rivka in the room in the hopes of him bowing to her feminine charms, which, of course, he did. Bond is still a little in the dark about the double bluffs all around him, but Paula tosses him the P-7 and oppresses upon him the impetus of escape. As they make their way through the bunker and out into the frozen wilderness on secret Yamaha skidoos, Paula explains that she is Supo, Finnish intelligence, and always has been. She'd been working von Gloda for a while and had ensconced herself in his NSAA outfit. After ten snowy kilometers, the pair reach the two kotas, tented buildings, of her lap observation post. Her colleagues, Aslu and Nils, have prepared food and warmth for them. Paula goes off to send a transmission to Helsinki and Bond heads towards some nourishment. Unfortunately, Kolia pops up under a heavy blanket, disarms Nails, and holds Bond to gunpoint. Turns out he wasn't a double agent working for Von Gloda either, but instead entirely for the KGB and its interest in getting Bond. By luring him into this multi-agency operation, Kolia could hit multiple targets at once. The plan is still to airstrike the bunker, under the justification that Von Gloda and the NSAA have military presence in Russia but with the smirsh sweetener of transporting 007 back to the motherland. Unfortunately for Kolia, Paula enters with her stealthy accomplice, Aslu, and the nimble Finn slips a hunting knife to his throat. Bond appeals for him to be kept alive, given his importance to the entire operation and considering the intel which he still possesses. Paula gives instructions, and Kolia is taken away. She then readies the snowmobiles again, and she and Bond access a nearby vantage point to watch the Soviet airstrike over the bunker. The first payload comes courtesy of a pair of fencers, Soviet Su-19 fighters, whose AS-7 missiles render impressive destruction. Gardner stretches the fireworks out a little, more for his pleasure than for the general readers, we suspect, but the scene ends predictably, with von Kloda's outpost transformed into a smoldering crater. Upon return to the Kotas, Bond and Paula discover that Aslu has been killed and Kolya Mosolov has escaped. Still in Russian territory, priorities quickly shift to returning to Finland. The double-seated Yamaha is prepared by Nils, and using what small head start they have, 007 and Paula traverse the frozen hinterland as incendiary blasts and mortar bombs from Kolya's tapering assault sound around them. As this escape is being executed, two figures crawl out from under the rubble of the Ice Palace's debris as a Cessna's single engine registers. Von Kloda 
and Hans Buckman silently congratulate each other on their survival as they start acting on their contingency plan. Safely back at the Hotel Reventuli, Bond and Paula iron out remaining confusions over smoked salmon and champagne, as you do. Played out as a hefty data dump, the gist is that Paula infiltrated von Kloda's operation a while ago and worked her way up the ladder into the major NSAA plan. Rivke, meanwhile, had only ever left her father's side geographically and had been brought into the plot by von Kloda as tempting bait-and-switch distraction for Bond. Readers gloss over the fact that this is the second father-daughter pimping gig in as many novels for Gardner, following Cedar Lighter being offered up by Felix in for special services, probably because Rivka was so zealously keen for it to happen. Bond's postcoital rest with Paula is interrupted by the cold touch of Colia's silenced Stetchkin pistol against his cheek. Having drugged Paula into further slumber, Mazolov has returned to deliver Bond, as promised and planned, to Mother Russia. Bond learns of von Gloda's survival and of his impending flight from Helsinki to Paris. Kolya's final plans are two-tiered. First, using Bond's car phone and 007 as bait, he'll lure von Gloda away from the airport and into the parking lot, where he'll be waiting to finish him off. KGB to the core, he was never part of the NSAA's plan, and will deliver up his smirsh prize to Moscow. Bond is forced into clothes and out towards the car. You've really got to admire Kolya's tenacious efforts here. I mean, he's pretty non-stop in this story, and he might have gotten away with these final steps if it hadn't have been for Chekhov's magnum Red Hawk. Feigning a manual electronics boot-up, Bond reaches one of the Saab's many hidden compartments and dispatches Kolya in the cold Helsinki morning. He then drives to Vanta Airport and waits for von Kloda. He spots him at the coffee shop, surrounded by six men. Unexpectedly, though, Bond's attack is upended by a passenger announcement requesting for him to report to the information desk on the second level. The message, issued by Hans Buckman, who Bond sees from a distance, motivates both sides into action. A melee ensues, and Bond and von Kloda trade shots. Luger and Red Hawk blasting simultaneously. Both men fall, but only one dies. And it's not James Bond. And so, Icebreaker comes to an end with a scene kind of reminiscent of The Wizard of Oz. Bond wakes up surrounded by friends. First, one he truly knows and understands, M, offering readers a rare out-of-office appearance. The second, Paula Vacker, who had, then lost and has recently regained Bond's full trust. And finally, there's Hans Buchtman, or, if you prefer, Bad Brad Turpitz, the CIA agent who had never joined the ranks of the NSAA, but, like Paula, had been working on the organization from the inside. Some flirting with Ingrid, a nurse who Gardner assures readers was, quote, built from a mold now broken, end quote, returns us to familiar territory. For 007, the adventure ends in convalescence, but his future exploits in Finland come with the promise of Paula's focused affection and, if Ingrid's words are to be trusted, something more casual than her medical care.
that was good. Very good. And uh, you managed to have the nice bit of humor in there too. So I'm glad that, uh, you know, you're getting that sort of caustic or at least sardonic eye towards things as you went along. It was definitely fun. Given some foreshadowing of what some of your ratings are going to be, I think, but uh, perhaps still, it was perhaps. fun. And, uh, and now it's time to score this baby. Um, our acronym for scoring is angle a for allies and adversaries. That pretty much is self-explanatory. Then we have N for narrative, the story itself, the writing. Mm-hmm. G for the girl, the bond woman, as we should say. But for purposes of the <laughs> acronym, we're not going to have annual unless we're Elmer Fudd. So <laughs> there we go. Uh, kill the wabbit. Then we have, kill the wabbit. <laughs> uh, indeed. And, you know, we, with Nazis involved, Wagner is not a bad way to go either, right? So there That's you go. Right, no. v- uh, Wagner for, fits. for Wagner fans. But it's true. And then you have uh, locale, L for locale. And then we have E for equipment, uh, the gadgets. So that's yeah. the angle. And what angle are we going to take on this story? Well, let's dive right into it. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. Um, you know, Josh, the third outing of our Bond actors, those who have done more than more than two, um, are often favored. We've got Connery's Goldfinger. We've got Roger Moore's The Spy Who Loved Me. We've got Daniel Craig's Skyfall. And now we have Icebreaker. So I am curious to mm, see parallel. if you felt, if you felt the way that I do about this. Uh, but I think this is a pretty good book. In fact, I would go as far at the outset of saying that this is better than what Gardner has produced yet. And I think part of the reason why that is the case, at least in my estimation, is because he's he's tried to simplify some things. Although we've got some pretty <laughs> we've got some pretty ridiculous features to the story, the setting is simplified, the uh, apparatus is simplified, and I think the narrative is a bit more straight ahead, linear. And I think that really helps him do more with the plot. But that's just me at the outset showing my hand a little early that I think Icebreaker is the best of the Gardner books. But how well will it feature here with our ratings? Let's let's have a little chat over it. Allies and adversaries, my good man, would you like to begin? All right. Well, let's name our allies and adversaries of this story okay. just so that we can present, you know, a, a, a spectrum that we can rate things upon or give you an idea about how we're rating things. So we got M, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have Brad Turpitz, uh, who's sort of like this ruthless Jack Wade type who in fact becomes an adversary in the end. He becomes basically the NSA's, the NSS, the, <laughs> sorry, the, the double A is confusing me. The NSAA's Himmler, like the Reichsfuhrer, as, as you right. mentioned. Yeah. So clearly in your breakdown, then we have Koyo Mosolov, a slippery Russian agent, but he's initially shown as an ally because he's part of the icebreaker team. <laughs> then we have our girl in the Mossad, Rivka Ingber. Again, not who she seems, but introduced as an ally who becomes an adversary. So allies and adversaries mm-hmm. are intertwined in this story. The only real I'm adversary sure that we know for sure is Count Conrad von Gloda, I, a.k.a. Arnett Tudier, who is basically Nordic Hitler 2.0. <laughs> then we have, of course, uh, Paula Vacker is also an ally, but she's also kind of the girl as well. So that goes into there. And then we have Aslu and Niels, uh, Paula's lapmen. Uh, well, they're lap because they're lap, so I say lap men, right? But they're also her mm-hmm. associates as well. Yes, they're not in her lap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. We don't really have much mention of like Bill Tanner in here or Money Penny. Uh, we don't have much mention even of cute, uh, so in terms of allies and adversaries, we do have a pretty good and interesting cast, but mostly of allies becoming adversaries. That seems to be the theme of Icebreaker. In terms of the character depth, there's a slight improvement in agency and narrative function. And this is due to Gardner utilizing his cast of characters and better serving the story. You, you talked about mm-hmm. simplifying things, and I think this is one of the ways that he does it. They feel part of the world rather than the archetypes that we're used to. There's an air of ambiguity that he gives them um, particularly the icebreaker team that we are not sure who to trust and which generates suspense with Bond's interaction with them. Now, in terms of personality, you know, any depth that we perceive is skin deep. There is a super, they're superficial in terms mm-hmm. of serving the story, mm-hmm. but there's a little bit more about mm-hmm. them that makes them intriguing. That makes them interesting to me as a reader. They're interesting because the story makes them so. And with some exception to Mazaloff, who I feel Gardner enjoyed writing in terms of like how yeah. he twisted turns with the plot. Like I can tell Mazaloff felt like he was writing an intriguing character, like almost like if this was his own red grant type, you know, um, I kind of see Mazaloff more of as a kind of a ruthless, more of like, of like a, just to give a modern example of a Russian spy, more like a Philip Jennings kind of character, you know, but uh, hmm, yeah. interesting. Anyways, overall I gave the allies and adversaries a four. Uh, this is a marked improvement than what okay. we had previously. Um, the villain overall, like Con- Count Conrad von Gloda, uh, to me, as I said, he's Hitler 2.0. There's not much depth to him. He's menacing. He's no. freaky. Anyone who adopts that sort of ideology is frightening to begin with. So automatically you have insta-villain formula right there. You know what I mean? Just add water yeah. and you've got yeah. um, neo-Nazi leader. And I mean, you don't get any more evil than that. It's yeah. someone who actually adopts that way. And the thing is that, that he, he does give them the background of being part of like um, – an ethnic, like a Nordic Finn who joins with the Nazis in World War II. So he's someone who was recruited to the the movement, right? And now he believes that he is the forerunner of the Nazi movement now. And he's the one that's going to continue on to the, create this fourth Reich, you know, because Hitler couldn't get his third Reich done. But it's also interesting mm-hmm. to parallel to Hitler, mm-hmm. who was a native Austrian and not a German, uh, who became the leader of the Nazi party, you know, who became mm-hmm. the, 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 the Fuhrer of Nazi Germany. So it was an interesting parallel that we have someone outside of Germany who is taking on this, this movement that is more inherent to Germany itself. Right. So yeah, the idea yeah. of the outsider who wants to, who brings something to the society that he wants to be a part of and then leads them into a new direction. And that's what to dear, what, Conrad von Gloda is trying to do here. So on that, on the basics of how his character was constructed on in terms of how he was sketched out by Gardner, the potential is there, but still, he still has that talking villain problem. Uh, to me, like, I don't understand why he just didn't shoot Bond right away. I know he wanted information, <laughs> but the complication that they give him is that he has his daughter. And that was, that was a bit of an interesting curveball that Gardner throws at us to make that relationship a little more deeper by having a daughter and father relationship there. It gives Van Gloda a dimension and creates a presence on the screen. That's a bit more relatable than just like, you know, Nazi leader, you know, it's something much more believable. It's like someone who adopted this ideology, who indoctrinated his child into this uh, ideology. So it's like this, it's that banality of evil that is so relative and even today that you understand it, even though in on the page, he's kind of over the top, 
but he still mm -hmm. works for the story as a whole. You can see this guy is a threat. He raises the idea of him, what he wants to do. It raises stakes in the narrative so that you can be afraid yeah. of him, that you understand the urgency of Bond's mission to wipe this guy off the board. Yeah. And then we go to Masalov, you know, uh, who is just this great kind of like weaselly Russian character, someone taken out right from like a Lakar story or something like that. You can tell that even from a Fleming story, the original Fleming story in a way. So you can tell Gardner enjoyed writing him in that character and how he twists and turns the plot. And it worked really well. I found like with all these guys working together, it kind of reminded me of like a John Frankenheimer story, like Ronin, for example, where you have like the team, you know, you have like Stellan Skarsgård, Robert De Niro, Jean Reno, mm. uh, Sean Bean, all those guys working together to work an objective. Yeah. And then of yeah. course there's betrayal so. within. So there's very a John Frankenheimer old school spy story, heist story built into this. Like and I, I think film. that really a good buddy film in a way it kind of, mm. I guess you could call Paula and Bond buddies, <laughs> buddies with benefits, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> you could look at it that way yeah. for sure. And the idea of some of these could be buddies. Um, and then buddies even though I guess it's part of the girl category, Rivka was also an adversary in her own way because she was really antidere. And you could really see, you know, like the depths of the ideology that she has to go through all that to get things done, even though she's dispatched so quickly. But it's still kind of a shocking moment. And I think overall, like all these characters work together for the grand story that Gardner did a great job of help, of using them to enhance his narrative, which makes the story stronger as well. So I, I'm here to say, you know, like overall, um, I give, I range from a four to a four and a half, but I'm going to stick with, uh, with a four just because of, I just found Gloda a little bit over the top. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool, man. Well, one thing. I'll, I'll say, uh, in response to you is that I agree the flip-flopping back and forth does work for this story. I think it could be a failure in other stories with perhaps a more complex plot, but here it works because it becomes a major feature of what draws us to the narrative. It, it's not just like there's all these red herrings and all this duplicity within a really complex story. It's a simple story that uses these duplicitous characters as, I think, a, a principal engine, you know, for the reader's interest. So, yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, you did miss, however, um, a rather important character in the story, Eric Carlson, the winter driver. You know, he is important because he teaches Bond how to maneuver that silver beast in the Nordic conditions. And I think he's the only character in the story that isn't withholding information from Bond. You think about it. Even Tanner and sure. M are withholding information from Bond. Eric Carlson doesn't. He's the only guy who's a straight ahead. He's not trying to pretend. Paula Vacker doesn't tell Bond that she's Lupo. Uh, Rivka Ingbar doesn't obviously tell Bond that she's a neo-Nazi. You've got uh, Brad Turpitz playing the double game. Everybody, Koilov playing the double game. Everybody is holding information back from Bond except for Eric Carlson. Except and I Eric think that's Carlson. Kinda, I think that's, right. I think that's pretty interesting, you know? Anyway, yeah. um, look, I, but here's the thing. I went for a three with my allies, allies and adversaries. So I was, I was a full mark below you. This is a curious story, buddy, for me, because even his allies make him work in the dark. And that extends to M, who knows, like M does kind of in From Russia with Love, that this icebreaker is a trap. It's a lure. It's a draw that's bringing Bond in. And he plays that bait. He plays that bait, M does, because it's worth it to him to see what's really going on. But I mean, come on, like it's KGB initiated this thing. 
it is nobody trusts that it isn't a trap, but they don't use those words. Brad Turpitz, it's a bit underwritten for me personally. I don't see why he couldn't have revealed that he was an inside man. I mean, I suppose that Gardner defends that because all the rooms are bugged and they have to be swept a couple of times and he makes it an issue of that. So, okay, he writes, he writes that explanation in that way, but you know, like, it's a little Von last Loda. minute when he puts it in it, there. It's yeah, almost like he's yeah. trying to fill in the blanks. That's right. Yeah. As for Von Gloda, how tired in 1983 is the Nazi trope? Like, I think we should talk about that because we have the neo-Nazi, you know, in all the video games that we've played, in all of the, you know, the Inglorious Bastards that we've seen. I know that's not a neo-Nazi, but you see my point. Like, there, we've, we've had a lot of refresh of the Nazi, whether of the context or A lot of World War settings. II movies, too. That's right. Absolutely. So... In 1983, I think I think he could be onto something. I think he might be riding the Spielberg wave, the Raiders of the Lost Ark wave. I think he could be riding that a little bit. But how tired is this neo-Nazi figure by the time Icebreaker is published? Because, I mean, Von Gloda is over the top. He's over the top in his caricature, in his cartoonishness. And I, I feel like, like Colia is the big bad. Yeah. I agree. Like he's almost a red herring villain because he's just so ridiculous and over the top that Koya yeah, seems to yeah. be a more realistic villain. I guess what, I, what mm-hmm. I'm getting from it is, is that I found Von Gloda to the year. I found him kind of a, you know, like I found him sort of a distraction where I was more interested in what Mosolov was up to. Mm-hmm. I like the whole idea mm-hmm. of like trading it in. Like Gloda is just a means to an end. You know what I mean? And That's right. uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like how, it's kind of like how the Lannisters use the phrase to take out the Starks, right? At the Red Wedding. So, you know, like, so just use, they're just tools that, uh, Mosolov is using to get Bond back to Russia where he's going to get some revenge that they feel, you know, that Smirsh feels is due, is due to him, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Uh, Paula Backer, uh, you know, I like the idea of Paula very much. And still, after completing the book, I do appreciate her agency in the story. I, I don't understand, though, why nobody knew or thought to tell Bond that they were working on the same side. Like, could she interpret not really have let yes. anyone in on it? And could M have not told her? M knew. M knew that Paula was Lupo, but never told Bond. I don't understand why M was withholding that either. Did he think it was going to complicate things or muddy waters for his most sexually charged agent? I mean, come on. M's not an idiot. He must know. He must know what Bond is like. I, I don't know, man. Like, yeah. it, Bond does, Bond doesn't have a lot of friends in this one. And I think, I think that works to the strength of the book because he is alone and he's got to figure shit out himself. Uh, but I also think that it would have been nice to have somebody he could have relied on. And he relies on M because M's distant and whatever. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just thought three was, three was fair. I see why you went four because the flip flopping was attractive to you. Narratively, it works really well because the narrative is more straightforward. But I, I'm going to stick with my three because I'm not convinced that in 1983, Von Gloda was not a tired neo-Nazi template. He well, is when a the tired template I did, I did here. Careful marks. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Fair enough. And and I don't like that Bond has no friends in here, even distant ones. You know, I think it's nice when there's a buddy that sure. you can trust, not a buddy that you have to second guess. But that's just me. That's just me. It is cool, though. Yeah. It, it's cool. I did like Niels and Asla, so maybe, maybe those, those lap men, I would, I would give an extra half point to, but I'll, I'll, I'll cool. stick at my three. They were, I will point out though that they were quickly dispatched and I didn't really like that. 
Like, oh, you bring in the ethnic, yeah. like yeah. you bring in the, the ethnic lap men and then you kill them off, like because plot, you know what I mean? Because you're raising the stakes for the characters, for the main non-ethnic characters. And I can mm-hmm. see, mm-hmm. you know, why people would disagree with that. And I kind of noted, mm-hmm. I, it didn't really bother me too much, but back in my mind, I made that check mark saying like, uh, yeah, that's a bit problematic but you know what yeah. times it was written in right and uh and totally. I, I, I you you can argue that it was simply for plot efficiency and raising the stakes in a mm-hmm. moment and and you also want paula to have believable allies that help them out right but um yeah yeah aslu and neils weren't meant to be karen bay but then again karen bay yeah, was killed as well so <laughs> i don't know yeah i don't know yeah so let's approach our narrative of the angle here uh the end I think what Gardner does really well here is, and this is why I think this book stands out compared to the last two, because the last two books was him not really following the Fleming formula per se, or any kind of mystery or spy formula to write those novels. To me, there was too much Bond movie fan service and the plots felt too much like they're trying, he was trying to do his own Bond movie, like plot, Mm, which are very different from the Fleming novels, very different from what you experience from a mystery or spy novel as well. So, I think he's taken the best attributes of the mystery novel and the spy story to craft an exciting espionage yarn. You know, like any character depth is to be found between the lines of the page. That's up to us, obviously. So, cause it's very, very, you know, skin deep. Uh, but the plot is efficiently constructed to make icebreaker more of a page turner for me than his previous two efforts. You know, his mm-hmm. writing in terms of action mm-hmm. and character work, uh, they function well within the intrigue of the story and as we discussed, neo-Nazis are cliched. He provides enough, not neo-Nazis, sorry, Nazis are cliched. Uh, he provides us enough backstory to make you believe it, I suppose, or understand mm-hmm. how it can be. I just think he went one part, or I think he went too much over by actually having them wearing the uniforms. Or, you know what I mean? Like that just was a mm-hmm. bit too much for me. Like literally when Bond is standing in the bunker, in the blue hair bunker what, in the Ice Palace, yeah, I literally yeah, expected yeah. BJ Blazkowicz <laughs> to walk in with his Gatling gun, blow everyone away like, you know, this is Wolfenstein 3D or something. Like, that's how it felt. I wanted to see Hitler <laughs> in a Megas, in like in a, uh, in some Robot sort of like suit. mech suit, it's a kind of mech suit or something like that with double Gatling guns. Yeah, anime style, you know, but uh, it didn't happen, so I didn't just get that moment. Um <laughs> But it very well could have been. It very well could have been, is my feeling. Speaking of Ice Palace, I wonder if this book, mm. I know John Gardner said to inspire some of the future oh, Bond yeah. movies, like, yeah. especially like the, the Living Daylights and License to Kill. I wonder if this somehow inspired the Ice Palace and Die Another Day. Yes, I think it did. I think it did. Yeah. Yeah. Even though very it's possible. not a palace, but yeah. No, but they called it that. I mean, that was, that was they the term did. for they it did. anyway. Yeah. Kind of a sarcastic term anyways. Um, yeah. I do found that like this fixation on equipment, like that grapple thing, for example, I can't even remember the name mm. of it now. You showed me the video and I just completely forgot the name of the grapple <laughs> the device. Pain's you know, with the pain's flare and all that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like literally, um, it's got stock in the company, man. Yeah, it really does. Um, but how he talks, you know, that was a bit ridiculous and he does do that a lot. He went way too much detail on make, trying to make snow plows menacing in my opinion, uh, but it, yes. it worked somehow <laughs> for me. It's weird to say, uh, but with the fighter planes and everything and bombing it, it's almost like it's this, it has that Cl- Tom Clancy kind of self-indulgence on showing all the, mm. the technicalities of everything and how they work. And it doesn't quite entirely fit with the streamlined plot that's going on. That's kind of, mo- that's kind of jumping back and forth in a, in a good way. But for some reason, like it just kind of takes me out a little bit. Like we're in doing an infomercial for the technology all of a sudden. Um, 
And the twists and turns of the plot, you have Rivke is Rivke is Antudir. Paula is good. Paula is bad. Paula is good again. Um, really Molotov's agency was the only thing that really kept me interested in terms of the characters and what, where he was going to. Everything else was kind of like feeding the plot, but it wasn't a bad plot. So I wasn't complaining. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I commend Gardner for that, for trying something different and it worked, you know, it worked well for the story and it, it was something different than what we had before. So I guess I was taken aback by that and that made me possibly enjoy the story more than it deserves. But I don't know. I went with uh three and a half for the narrative. Okay. Well, I went to step above you there. I, I went for a four with this one. I, I think it is that much better than the two previously. Um, you know, personally, buddy, and I'm wondering what you think about this as well. I felt that the Supo angle was underdeveloped. Like it was, it was layered okay insofar as Paula turns out to be a good guy. But the fact that M doesn't know or didn't know or didn't reveal that to Bond, I didn't really buy that. I mean, are you okay with that in terms of like the hierarchy of intelligence? Are you okay with that? For some particular reason, Gardner wants us to understand M is a professional and he's keeping things to himself. And I guess it wants to show the idea that Bond, even though, you know, he's one of M's best men, he's still a pawn in the game as well. So that creates a bit of suspense and, you know, urgency to the situation as well. There's a, it creates a tension. And I think that's what Gardner was trying mm-hmm. to achieve. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not it fits in terms of the plot, you know, does it hold water? That's another story mm-hmm. for your, our own mm-hmm. subjective reasoning. But I, yeah. I, I feel yeah. you on that. And, uh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure why Paula needed to infiltrate them, but anyway. Yeah, anyway. Um, here's another question for you. Like, what's the likelihood that Von Gloda is going to be fooled by two double agents from two separate intelligence organizations? I mean, like, eh, just seriously. And considering he's using his daughter as a double agent, surely he knows that the potential's out there for them to return the favor. So it's just a little bit too unbelievable. And that's wrapped up into his whole MO, right? It's just a little bit too unbelievable. Like everybody tries it on and they want to pull the wool over everybody else's eyes in the story. And the narrative does lack a little bit for that. But at the same time, that's what makes us compelled to consider to continue following. So it's a a tricky one. But I, I also feel a little bit like as much as I enjoy the novel's freshness, and I do think what you said is spot on, I think he's writing these characters, particularly Koila, uh, Kolia, I think he's writing him really with an enthusiasm and a confidence, like the actors maybe who play the third time out. I think he's writing with a confidence that he knows what he's got now, and he's he's writing these characters with a bit of complexity, at least all but von Glode. Um And as much as I like that freshness, I do still feel like you know, the NSAA and the reborn Reichstad and all of that, or the, the, the SS, I think it's letting leaks into the boat that don't need to be there a little bit. And like you said, like the costumes don't it, need it, to be there. Nothing's gained by making them Nazi no. uniforms. Nothing's gained by using the same propaganda in the hallways. Nothing's gained by borrowing the, the Nazi artists and making them the portraits in the room. Like that stuff doesn't add to the NSAA, you know, you don't yeah, need to it, have it, but yeah. it's, it, that's the Raiders of Lost Ark like, thing. It absolutely is. And they're trying to build on something that was popular. I mean, if you look, for example, like the star Wars sequels, like, Oh, well, are they going to have a new antagonist? That would be interesting. No, we're just going to bring the empire back, but call it the first order. You know, it's the yeah, same thing. Yeah. We're just basically right. recycling yeah. old, old villainy over and over again. And I mean, mm-hmm. Nazis are evil. Yes, absolutely. That ideology is terrible and whatnot. 
But mm, then again, absolutely. those are also individuals that succumb to that, that believe that. And they, there's reasons why they came to what they did. And it's much more interesting when you look into it. But at the same time, you know, they're a well-known evil. So I understand mm-hmm. why they'd use it. I mean, it's something that's been in cinema since Casablanca, right? So that's right. Yeah. yeah good yeah. point. Well, I, I went for a four. You went for a three and a half. You know, I talked myself probably more towards a three or a three and a half, but I'm going to stick it with a four because it is so much. I'm not going to say the other two books weren't not good, but what you said about them being more movie washed down, mm. I think they're a he- little, little more heavily laden with the movie feel. I think you're right. This is Gardner writing more in his own vein um, or with more of an eye to what Fleming did, you know, and I, I, I appreciate that. And you know something else? It's a nicely written book. There are some nice moments of character reflection. There are some nice descriptions, uh, nice moments. I think that he's really enjoying being in in Iceland, in Finland, and that creates a linger sensation, which we'll get to the locations and talk about in a moment. But I'll go really quick on girls too, buddy. I was three and a half for girls, Annie and Paula. I, 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 I'm getting a bit tired with how all secret agents need to be sex bombs. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's got to be some bog standard, normal, everyday looking men and women out there, right? Like the idea of agents in everyday settings, henchmen are ugly and Bond girls are beautiful. Like, okay, but we're, to be fair, we're doing it is this a long time. So, I mean, that's true. Yeah. Scandinavia is full of lovely looking folk. You're absolutely right. I guess we got to go with that, but I, I, I kind of would like at some point in these modern, okay. more modern bond novels, like the idea of agents in everyday settings. I mean, even Fleming gave us one of his best characters, Rosa Klebb, you know, um, she's described in unfavorable terms, but she's a remarkable character. And, Irma Bunt, same thing. They're remarkable characters. I'd like for one of these later, more recent stories, at least, um, one of these continuation novels to offer something a little more everyday. At least one, but everybody's got to be fucking beautiful and double crossing. You know, it just makes such a weird chessboard to try to read through and to strategize. Must be hell for an agent. But anyway, three and a half for me on girls. I was a three. I was less than you. Um, Paula and Anne slash Ribkey, they were interesting because the plot turned them into plot devices to create intrigue and suspense. But he barely touches the surface with them, Gardner. And really, they only have these functionary elements. There was like, that are so tropey. You basically have Paula, the capitalist Madonna, and then you have Ribkey, the fascist whore. Like you have basically have the Madonna mm-hmm. whore dichotomy with political ideology happening here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and there was no exploration of Rivkey's relationship with her father. I think that would have been more interesting if she was against. I found it more interesting that she was against her father. That was more intriguing to me because then we're almost like we're approaching what reminded me of. Um, I don't know if you read it, but Stieg Larsson, Stieg Larsson, Salander novels. I'm not talking no. about the films. I've actually read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, but that has a lot of stuff about the Scandinavian Nazi past and also dealing with also with like abuse and violence like sexual violence and, and and whatnot and that connects to the nazi past and i thought somehow gardner was kind of pushing at that a little bit in the story but it never went to that direction as i expected it to mm. i shouldn't have expected mm. it to to be honest but for some reason that setting just kind of reminded me of Stieg larson's salander work that it, it just sort of yeah it kind of reminded me of that cool okay Okay, well, yep. in terms of locations and environmental writing, the way that uh, Gardner renders it, I've I've already kind of showed my hand that I, I like being in Finland 
and I think he does too. There's not a lot of moving around in this book, so for those who really love the travel log, you might be a little disappointed with Icebreaker, but there is a lot of linger, there is a lot of atmosphere, there's a lot of climate. I feel like he's sinking us into this one in a way that we didn't get with the other ones. Um, we did get a little bit in Scotland you know with um, License Renewed, but... That was probably it, you know. I mean, he flew through Spain. He flew through Andalusia. He th- flew through uh, Madeira, even at the early part of the story. What's the fucking point of going to Madeira? You know, like he doesn't, he wants to get to Finland and that's what he does well. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Like I know that, but outside of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I can't really think of a story that offers as much snow and cold as this one does. And the novelty factor for me is high. It was nice to be back in this environment. So I went for a four. Yeah, I, I I was a four on the locales as well. It was refreshing compared to the last two novels. And I know for a fact that Gardner went to Finland to research this story. Mm-hmm, that's right. And you can tell that he was, we're seeing this world through Bond's eyes because Gardner is writing it exactly as he experienced it. And I just want to comment on, I was going to go here to, yeah, chapter three. So this is Bond in Helsinki. The taxi bowled steadily south down the Manor Hymenity. Snow was neatly piled off the main pavements, and the trees bowed under its weight, some decorated as though for Christmas, with long icicles festooning the branches. Near the National Museum, with its sharp tower fingering the sky, one tree seemed to crouch like a white-cowled monk clutching a glittering dagger. Overall, through the clear frost, Bond could glimpse the dominating floodlight, floodlit domes of the Apensky Cathedral, the great church, and knew immediately why filmmakers used Helsinki when they wanted location shots of Moscow. The two cities are really as unlike one another as desert and jungle, the modern buildings of the Finnish capital being designed and executed with flair and beauty, in contrast to the ugly clone monsters of Moscow. It is in the older sections of both cities that the mirror image becomes uncanny, in the side streets and small squares where houses lean in one another and the ornate facades are, remi- are reminders of what Moscow once was in the good old bad old days of czars, princes, and inequality. Now, Bond thought, they simply had the Politburo, commis- commissars, the KGB, and inequality. Paula lived in the apartment building overlooking the Esplanade Park at the southeasterly end of the Manor Hemenity. It was part of the city Bond had never visited before, so his arrival was one of surprise and delight. So here we're getting the travelogue a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. The park itself mm-hmm. is a long landscape strip running between the houses. There were signs that in summer it would be an idyllic spot with trees, rock gardens, and paths. Now in midwinter, the Esplanade Park took on a new original function. Artists of various ages and ability had turned the place into an open-air gallery of snow sculpture. From the fresh snow of recent days, there rose shapes and figures lovingly created early in winter, abstract masses, pieces so delicate you would imagine they could only be carved from wood or work at the patience in metal, and so on and so forth. You know, as his cab progresses through down the, mm-hmm. down the, down the thoroughfare to reach Paula's place and the idea of, you know, she lives like in this little house and that's how they described everything in Helsinki. It was very much placing you there in the moment. And that's, that's, you mentioned there was no real travelogue in this. I disagree. I, I just think that's like, this is like on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's set in a particular setting, mostly during the book. Okay. Fair enough. And yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Take me, take me to, take me to task on that. That's, that's appropriate. What I, I guess what I should have said I, is that there's no, there's no island hopping. There's no location switching. Oh, no kind I see. Of, you know, there's, there's no airport yes, flickery yes. on the boards. There's not a lot of that. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. Finland works. And just if, for example, think of the snowmobile riding through this. And there's a couple of snowmobile chases in this in this book, and how exciting! I found that they were written very excitingly on how they were done and stuff. And you can picture them just motoring across 
mm-hmm. you know, over the hills and over across the flats and everything. Like I just found the detail of that was very convincing and it pulled me into mm-hmm. the story and it, I was along for the ride with it. You know, it was exciting. Yeah. And I think yeah. Gardner did a great job in this respect. He made the locales really strong. So I'm not going to give it a mm-hmm. full marks, but I, I think a four is more than satisfactory for what Gardner did in this book. Maybe even a four mm-hmm. and a half if I were to push myself, but I'll stay with my four. I wonder if uh, with A View to a Kill coming up next and knowing that pre-title sequence, I wonder if the Skidoo had anything to do, or the Snow Scooter, sorry, <laughs> if it had anything to do with Roger Moore's yeah, pre-title sequence there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, and there was a grappling not. hook kind of thing used in that. That's sequence, right, too. yeah, there was, there sure was. Yeah. And there was a there flare was. used as well. And there were incendiary explosions. I'm just saying, just putting it out there. Anyway, And there was, uh, and there was a Paula in that over... movie, too. That's right. There was a Paula. Yeah. The double agent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Hey, man. It, I don't think we're turning Wonder, over fresh stones, but it's fresh for us at least. Uh, right. On to equipment now. Gee, whoa. Tell you what, man. Tons of equipment in this story and all Gardner stories. Um, a lot of it. Well, some of it. Some of it feels like product placement here, like the Payne's Wessex speed line that has a gratuitous scene. And yes. it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of, by the time the, the speed line is thrown out, it's, it kind of gets boring, you know, like we're just waiting and he's talking to her through the, <laughs> through the loudspeaker. It's it, the whole thing feels like principal Skinner moment to me, but uh, I don't know. Like <laughs> anyway, uh, techie fans, we're going to love this stuff. They will love Gardner's stories, but there are things mentioned here that barely get used. And I, I, I get this sense of just because I can, it comes to mind. Like, I know you were a soldier, John. I get it. I understand you were an agent too, and you did some intelligence work, but I don't need to know everything you got in your suitcase, man. I don't need to know everything that you've got in your car. I don't need to know everything that you're carrying on your person. You know, like he goes to that detail and then it, a lot of it is just left there. It's, it's, it's description. Clancy, it's expo- it's yeah. exposition. Clancy-esque. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like knives, guns, car phone, debugging, the rope throwing, you know, all of that stuff. Like it's just a bit detracting. I think when you get so much of it and I mean, give Gardner his fair dues. He does use the majority of what he mentions, but sometimes it's name dropped and left a bit out on of the page. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. A bit adolescent, you know, but that's too, but you know what? There's an energy there, right? Cause there's, that's obviously something he loves and I'm not going to bash him for it. I'm just going to say your story's not always better with it. That's what I'll say. You know, fair. You don't, you don't want to piss on someone's excitement, but, uh, yeah. So I went, I went for a three and a half with equipment because uh, I just got good credit for the story. I think I just like icebreaker and <laughs> I'm going to, I'll give it, I'll give it that extra little bit. How about you? What did you think of the, of the gadgetry? In Icebreaker, a gadgetry filled book with very little cute or Q branch. I enjoyed the use of equipment in the story. It served the narrative, like the Saab did its thing. You know, it was great in the mm-hmm. plow, in the snow plow chase. We had the setup, the setup of, of course, of the, uh, of the Magnum revolver, Strikov's right. gun, yeah, as yeah, you mentioned, yeah. uh, in the breakdown and how that was used eventually. I kind of like the ingenuity of stuff used too, like how the ice, how the, the ice palace was conceived and the history behind it. I like the details of when, when the fencers arrived and bombed the mm-hmm, shit out of it. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. Yeah, yeah, seven. Um, how that yeah, was done cool. and how they described that. Yeah, that was a really interesting scene. Um, but you know that it was sort of like a bit frivolous because we know that Glauda got away, but did he get away? We're not quite sure. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. we get that epilogue afterwards, sort of, um, 
or this secondary climax in, in a way at the airport. But I like the ingenuity of the villains too, how like, uh, uh, Turpitz or whatever his German name is, how he, uh, put a hole in the ice and use the chain to torture Bond with the ice, you know, that kind of waterboarding yeah. with ice. That was, yeah. that was terrible. Not terrible, but that was diabolical. And, um, Bond and how it was written, how Bond was resisting it. That was really interesting. So I kind of stuff that kind of field work to me kind of works with equipment as well about how you, you use your resources and your tools to fit the environment. Mm-hmm. And the snowmobiles would be another example of that too. Mm-hmm. So they work for the narrative, uh, snow plows. I mean, they're trying to find a subtle way of bumping them <laughs> off. And I guess that's not too bad where it could be considered an accident, but. But why though? Uh, I don't know. Can I, you explain that to me? Why? Why were they trying to bump them off with the snowplows? I didn't fucking get it. Why were they trying to do that? Like if, if well, both of they, them have designed for him to be there later, why are they trying to kill him now on his way up to, to, uh, Salah? You know, I just realized too is because the whole idea was Kolya was supposed to get Bond to transfer over yeah, to the, I, I don't um, get to smirch. So I don't KGB. understand why. Unless somehow Kolya changed his plans before Bond got there. Or just after that incident happened and Koya changed yeah, his plans to adapt. For me. Or, or Gloda changed his plans. Yeah. So it seemed kind of a superfluous scene overall. Hmm. But yeah, like anyway, the equipment was used fine throughout the story. And we have like the infomercial with the Benson thing. I think you said it was. I, I can't remember the mm-hmm. name of it now again, but <laughs> Payne's West. It was used officially for the story and it worked with the narrative. There you go. There you go. So. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with sitting at a four on this. I'll, I'll maybe, maybe a okay. little more than it deserves, but overall, like, I just want, I, I think it's just a, sh- a showing of how much we enjoyed this novel compared to the last two. Yeah. That were a little yeah. more generous in some categories than we would in other cases. So, well, th- that yeah. just seems to be the case. Everything is subjective. We, we can't deny it. Nah, you're right, buddy. And, uh, for this one, you were at an 18 and 18.5 and I was at an 18. So I don't know that really our scores would reflect 18 and 18 and a five at a 25. I don't know that really reflects that this is a superb read for us, but we, we did enjoy it. And as our indexes often indicate, you know, the scoring doesn't necessarily reflect your fresh enjoyment or the aesthetic factor, but it, uh, it does. Yeah. It, it, no. It's a good book. And I think people will like this one. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Despite the thing with the neo-Nazis, um, I think it's a good spy story. So if you want to sit down and just enjoy a good spy story with double crosses and whatnot, it's it's a good read in that respect. And it's definitely the best of, jo- of Gardner's work so far. And I'm curious to see if he continues his trend in quality going forward into the next book. Yeah, man. Okay, well, uh, our next John Gardner adventure, Josh, will be Roll of Honor, which is his fourth story. And, you know, if if I think we've read three now, plus we've had Kingsley Amos's um Colonel Sun, I think if I was to rank them, uh, if asked, I might put Icebreaker just beneath Colonel Sun. I still really like Colonel Sun. Uh, I'd go Colonel Sun. I'd go Icebreaker. Then I'd probably go License Renewed and for Special Services at the bottom of the four so far. Yeah, that's fair. What about you? My rankings would be... I'm going to go with Icebreaker at the top. I think I enjoyed it a little more than Colonel nice Sun. One. I thought the characters were, were pretty were pretty good in Colonel Sun. So that puts that at number two. And then I have the same as you in regard to the other two texts. I have third place, License Renewed, and fourth place, I can't remember the name of it now, for Special Services. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, let us know what you think, everybody, uh, by hitting us up on the socials at uh, our Instagram, bbn underscore pod, or email us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com. Uh, and let us know what you thought about this adventure. 
We will be back very soon on the show with a look at John Frankenheimer's The Train as part of our annual Three Non-Bonds film survey. Really exciting. Uh, just got us started with uh, The Born Identity. If you haven't checked that episode out, please do. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, Josh is coming after. He'll be the third to finish us off here with The Three Non-Bonds. And, of course, Bond by Numbers has still got lots of good content planned for the year. And just a few months away from our third holiday special. Really looking forward to that one, too, BFG. Mm-hmm. wonder what tricks you have lined up for us there. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, got it start- I haven't started thinking about that yet. But, uh, hey, we'll get there soon. <laughs> anyway, pal, it's uh, it's been good be fun. fun. Thanks for thanks for joining me on this adventure. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Bond by Numbers. We'll, uh, we'll see you again soon. Yep. Take care, everyone.